Hello and welcome to Genderfuck, the sexual health and wellness podcast ran by trans people and for trans people. I'm your host, Dan Griffiths. My pronouns are he, him. And I'm Oliver Ellis. My pronouns are he, him. Um, do you have any updates or anything this week? Um, let's see, updates. I guess one update for the podcast is that we've started a a curious cat. Is that what it's called? <laughs> We've got it linked on our Twitter. It's like, I think I put the link in the bio, but it's basically something that you can send like anonymous questions or like feedback or anything like that, which we'd be very interested in hearing. We'd also like some questions because we think like maybe when we've got more people listening, if we did like a question and answer Mm -hmm. episode or something with like your burning like sex education or like wellness questions. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds really fun. We're just like, yeah, we want to hear from everyone who's listening. So feel free to send us some anonymous feedback. (laughs) We love that. Yeah. Please don't be mean. Yeah. We don't love being mean, but some nice anonymous constructive criticism would be fine. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Do you have any updates? Mm. How's life been for you? (laughs) I mean, I've got a new microphone, so hopefully that'll solve some of my Uh, problems that I've been having with audio because I hated (laughs) that microphone. Yeah, fingers crossed. I keep getting people asking me for like podcasting tips, which makes me feel very like professional. And I'm usually just like, I don't really know, but this is what we do. And it sort of vaguely works. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, very sweet. <laughs> um, I also yeah. got my grade back for my master's. Ooh. That's fun. Congrats, congrats. <laughs> yeah, I'm graduating with a distinction, which is fun. Yeah, that's amazing. Good job. You deserve it. Thank you. I just have to try and find a job now. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. (laughs) So we decided that we wanted to do this episode today because it's going to be released on the 1st of December, which is World AIDS Day. Um, So we decided that we wanted to kind of touch on what HIV and AIDS is, kind of how it's treated these days, and kind of do like a little bit of a dive into the history and stuff like that. Yeah, so World AIDS Day was the first ever World Health Day. It was founded in 1988, uh, and it's kind of about mem- like remembering everyone who's died from AIDS-related illness, while also you know supporting people currently living with HIV, and you know really wa- raising awareness for what it's actually like today because HIV is very different now than kind of when it started in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, so HIV stands for human immunodeficiency virus, uh, and basically what it does is attacks and weakens the body's immune system. And so if HIV is left untreated, it can turn into AIDS, which is acquired immunodeficiency syndrome. Um, this is kind of this last stage where the immune system is really, really weakened and it can't fight off other diseases. Um, this is why, you know, you hear people talk about people dying from AIDS-related illness. It's not actually the AIDS that they die from. It's like that weakened immune system that leaves them really vulnerable to, to other illnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in terms of the transmission, so if it's left untreated, it can be transmitted through um, a, a bunch of bodily fluids. So it can be transmitted through blood, um, semen, preseminal fluid, vaginal fluid, rectal fluid, and breast milk. Um, and those are the only ones. Some people think that you can kind of get it from like sweat or saliva, um, but that's not true. And you can also not get it from from skin to skin touch. So like there's lots of things that it's fine to do. So you can, you know, you can breathe the same air. You can like, you know, hug and kiss and shake hands with someone with HIV. You can share eating utensils. And there's lots of things that people kind of used to think would transmit it. But um, now we know that it's only that those fluids that I mentioned. Yeah, definitely. I think like a good example of like kind of getting rid of the stigma around like how it's transmitted and stuff was like Princess Diana when she like went into the hospitals with HIV patients and like was like shaking their hands without medical gloves and stuff like that to kind of like show people Mm -hmm. that like 
you can't get it through skin to skin touch. Yeah, absolutely. People were like afraid to yeah even mm-hmm. be in the same room as someone with HIV or AIDS because they weren't really sure how you could even catch it. Um, so the science has, has gone a long way since then, but there is still a lot of stigma. Yeah, like even doctors like at the beginning were too scared to be mm-hmm. around the patients and stuff like that. So it's like definitely a lot better these days. Yes, for sure. And so in terms of like the actual ways people get it, so um, you can get it through sex. So the types of sex that are most risky are the ones that involve any of those fluids I mentioned. So like unprotected vaginal or anal sex are the main ones. Mm -hmm. Um, And they can also be transmitted through any sort of blood to blood contact. So like through sharing needles for injection drug use. Um, It can also be transmitted through like parent to child during pregnancy, birth or breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. But one important thing to kind of note about this in terms of the management is that there are really great like medications that people with HIV can take um, and people with HIV on treatment have the exact same average life expectancy as people without HIV. Um, so the treatment is called antiretroviral treatment or um, ARTs. And basically what this does is like keeps your CD4 count, which is like white blood cells that help fight off diseases. It keeps that count high by stopping the HIV from replicating. Um, and people with HIV on treatment can actually get to the point where they have an undetectable viral load, which means HIV can't even be detected in their blood by standard tests. Um, and this is kind of what we talk about when we say U, U equals U, so undetectable equals untransmittable. Um, and this means that they can't pass it on through sex if their viral load is so low. And so when we talk about sex being like a risky thing, that doesn't really apply if someone like is you equals you if, if they're undetectable. God, you're like really like the expert on... <laughs> it's just because I literally talk like this is like half of what my job is, is like talking about this exact stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the next bit would be that like people who are on treatment and they take it like consistently... Um, they can be described as undetectable and untransmittable. So that's if they have like a zero viral load, then they can't transmit it on to anyone else. Uh, U equals U only really applies to sex though, because gestational parents on HIV. Yeah, also, I'm not actually sure. So um, the science on like transmitting HIV through like pregnancy or childbirth or like feeding or anything like that is kind of, I think it's sort of moving quite quickly. I think the general advice at the moment is like, I think a lot of places will still tell parents to like not not breastfeed or chest feed if they have HIV. Um, but I think I think that if they're undetectable, the chances of them actually transmitting it are like really really low. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what the current guidance is on that. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, I just don't totally know like what what the current thing is, but because mm-hmm. I think like parent to child transmission has like isn't really a thing in Scotland anymore like I think the numbers are so low but like I'm, I'm not an expert on sort of that aspect of it so okay cool um but also like if you don't take your medication like very regularly then um it may not be undetectable so then it may still be transmittable so it's really important to kind of keep up with regular medication and appointments and stuff like that mm-hmm. Um, but it's also like important for us to kind of note that like the way that we're approaching this episode is mostly very like UK based where like the rates of HIV and like how we're able to treat HIV is a lot different to kind of places like Africa or other places which have like much higher rates and like risk of HIV. Yeah. Having access to treatment is like such a fundamental thing and like, yeah, keeping sort of transmission rates low, um, especially with like U equals U, you know, people who 
you know, a, a pretty high proportion of people in the UK who have HIV are on treatment and are actually undetectable. So it means like they can't even pass it on, which like obviously helps a lot with lowering rates. Mm. Um, some other things that kind of help with lowering rates and help with HIV prevention are PrEP. So um, if you don't know what PrEP stands for, it's pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, and this is basically a medicine that you can take that reduces your risk of contracting HIV. Uh, some people take it like daily. Um, there's also a way of taking it called T's and S's, which is like Tuesdays, Thursdays, Saturdays, Sundays, I think. Mm -hmm. So I think the idea is if you take it four days a week, um, you can it like provides you enough protection, um, but that one is a bit less common because like if you miss even one dose, then you're not protected. So the kind of daily dose um, is a bit more consistent. Mm -hmm. um, some people also take it in like events-based doses. So if you want to plan around a certain event that you think you might be like having unprotected sex or something like that, um, you can take it just sort of like around that event. Mm -hmm. Um, but it doesn't prevent against any other SDIs. So um, it is really great for stopping the transmission of HIV. But if you're worried about other things like gonorrhea or chlamydia or like anything else, um, condoms are still like the best way to do that. Um, like you'd kind of need a barrier method for, for that to actually work. It <laughs> doesn't do much for that. <laughs> do both if you can. Like Yeah, the ideal would be to do yeah. both. Yeah. Um, and in terms of where you can get it, so you can get PrEP for free in the NHS. Um, in Scotland, if you meet certain criteria, um, and I think similarly in like the rest of the UK, I think you can get it for free. I don't know as much about their like eligibility criteria, yeah. um, but I think. Yeah, I don't know that eligibility criteria much, but I know, I think it was like last September or something, they made it free all throughout the UK. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, which is really great, obviously. Um, I think... If you are interested in PrEP, there's like, there's lots of resources online, but I think if you go to kind of any sexual health clinic, they should be able to like do a bit of an assessment and kind of see if you're at risk and, and you should be able to get it through there. Yeah, I know um, it's in London, so it's probably not accessible to most people that listen, but I know that 56 Dean Street is a, it's like a sexual health clinic in London and it's like trans friendly. Oh, cool. It's like, they've got like their own like trans services. So That's great. They, they, I would probably recommend that. Like, they also have um, a lot of information about like prep and pep and all of those kind of things on their website. So I'd recommend that. Yeah, that's great. And especially like keeping trans people sort of involved in that conversation because, mm -hmm. um, you know, trans people, even if you're on hormones and things, you can take prep and pep. Like, there's no sort of known interactions. Um, but trans people are often, like a lot of things, like not really in that conversation around HIV prevention. Yeah. Um, but it's like everything around HIV prevention is applicable to every person, like regardless of gender or sexuality. Yeah. Plus, um, cause I've been having to do like a lot of reading for my PhD proposal and stuff like that, but I can't remember the exact statistics, but trans people, especially trans women of color are at much higher risk of HIV. And that's usually through mm -hmm. like kind of socioeconomic factors mm -hmm. or like kind of having to do sex work in order to kind of keep yourself alive, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, so like factors like that, that can like impact a population particularly like a minority group mm -hmm. they are usually at more risk so keeping trans people like in the kind of conversation about this and giving them the resources and stuff is like really really important yeah a recent study was done i think in the u.s that kind of analyzed a lot of um papers on this topic and they found um that trans women kind of had worse outcomes than their cis counterparts mm -hmm. um in terms of like hiv like access to treatment and things like that um and what they found for trans men was like a huge research gap where like they just really did not have yeah. um 
I guess, the numbers of people um, that had actually been studied. Um, but it's good to see that at least, you know, doing the research is a step in the right direction to kind of see, um, you know, what the needs of the trans population is. Um, because I guess once you know the needs, it's a lot easier to kind of like find services and like create services for them. Yeah, that's like the tough thing trying to do research for this or like anything else that I'm doing is like, there's just not enough out there. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, yeah, trying to like write about something, but I'm like, I don't have any evidence. Like, I know, like, anecdotally, <laughs> like, this is happening. Like, I've seen so many reports of this happening, but there's no like mm-hmm. academic stuff being done, or it's not been published yet. That kind yeah. of like helps to kind of give some evidence and like kind of test if things are happening, or, like what needs people yeah. have. It's just like really annoying. Absolutely. This is kind of off topic, but um, there's a a report that came out last year um, in collaboration between uh, Waverly Care and like Scottish Trans Alliance. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like, it's a really, really great report. I use it for like so many things now, but um, it's all about like trans people's barriers to accessing sexual health services. Um, But yeah, just like a really amazing report. Um, Lots of good quotes and like, yeah, sort of confirming all the stuff that like has been in a totally said within the trans community for a long time um but now it's like actual research which is great what are the Um, kind of like barriers and stuff that you can remember because i think it would be quite important seeing as like people need to be able to access services to get hiv care and stuff like that yeah totally i mean i think a big part of it was like the sort of fear of you know not knowing what a service is going to be like before you get there you know the Mm -hmm. fear of like the expectation that most trans people have of like you know, just transphobia and discrimination, you know, like just kind of not really being able to get comfortable, um, just worrying about being misgendered and things like that. And like Mm -hmm. knowing that the people who are providing the services might not have the best knowledge and like might not actually be able to provide competent care. Um, And there's other things as well in terms of like actual just sort of like organizational like access issues of like is it in person is it online is the building physically accessible Mm -hmm. um are you allowed to bring a friend in i mean there's just like so many considerations um but i can maybe put a link to that report as well um and like the episode description because it's yeah a really great thing if you're interested in in trans um sexual health and well-being yeah i mean i'd love to read it anyway so yeah yeah for i will definitely send it to you it's right up your alley (laughs) um but yeah, I guess I guess going back to HIV and PrEP and stuff, you kind of got off topic, but, you know, still important. Um, so if you're, for some reason, like not eligible for PrEP through the NHS, but you do want it, it can be bought online from like pretty credible sources. Um, there's a, like a website called like IWantPrepNow.co.uk that um, has lots of information and like where to go if you want to buy it. Um, but if you do source PrEP... Um, like yourself, you still should go to a clinic or doctor to get kind of regular blood work done. Because again, as we said before, like it's important to kind of, um, yeah, keep up with that stuff and kind of check in regularly. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, um, it's like not super expensive. Like obviously like you shouldn't have to pay for it, but like if you need to, it's, you know, it's, um, it's a good resource to have, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, another option is PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis. And that's basically a kind of after exposure thing as hence in the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's basically like, if you've had a risk of like HIV, you think you've been exposed to it or anything in the past 72 hours, you can take it and it's a four week course. Um, and then you can also just like get this for free at like A&E or at some sexual health clinics. Um, yeah. So other than PrEP and PEP, um, other things that we've mentioned before, obviously, um, that can protect against HIV are condoms. So when they're used correctly, they, you know, stop that transmission of like 
semen and like, you know, other fluids and stuff. Um, so those are also good for protecting against other SDIs, which is great. Um, we're big advocates for condoms all the time. Um, <laughs> another thing is just getting tested. So like knowing your status helps, um, you know, helps you make informed decisions about your health and the health of your sexual partners. Um, So in terms of how to get tested for HIV, um, so the the place I work for, SX, offers like rapid tests in Edinburgh. So it literally takes like 60 seconds to get a result. It's just a finger prick, a few drops of blood, um, super easy. You can also get um, home testing kits, I think, for free pretty much in most places in the UK where you can order and it's Mm -hmm. like a similar thing. You just prick your finger put a few drops of blood in there. Um, and it's like a pretty simple process. Um, then also, obviously, if you go to like your local sexual health clinic, they can do full blood work and things like that. And there are window periods for HIV tests. So for a rapid test, um, it's like three months. And I think it's four weeks if you get like full blood work and things. Um, and that just means that HIV can't be reliably detected within that window period. So if if you do have a risk that's within that four week or three month period, you know, I'll, you know, just get another test and in, in the next few months or the next few weeks, um, just to be sure. Mm-hmm. But um, so would you say like the recommendation? So if someone thought that they had kind of contact with HIV or something like that to get mm-hmm. like, um, get PEP and then take that for like the four weeks. And then once they've gotten up to like three months to get tested for HIV. Yeah. So I think if you um, are in contact with services, getting PEP, um, they'll probably like schedule tests for you. So mm-hmm. probably at the end of that four week course, they would test you, do like full blood work and test you for HIV, um, as well as like testing you at the beginning, just so they make sure you don't like you hadn't had it already. Um, but yeah, I think if you're linked in with services already, that's probably like part of the process. Okay. Um, but yeah, I think if, yeah, if you have had a risk within the last 72 hours, I think getting PEP is the best thing to do. But if it's been longer than that, um, you know, still go get a test, like to sort of calm your peace of mind. But, um, you know, I think most people, um, if you're at risk of anything like this, or just kind of any SDIs in general, if you're having sex with like multiple partners, um, getting a test like every three months is generally a good idea anyway, mm-hmm. um, just to kind of check in, yeah. see what's going on with your body. You know? <laughs> we could maybe in the show notes link, because I don't know off the top of my head, the kind of testing windows for every sti mm-hmm. um i could put in the show notes like a little like chart or something that kind of gives people the information but like yeah about three months is yeah that'd be great um the again sx where i work um has a really great the, the website has lots of different resources um and we have a page full mm-hmm. of like the testing windows for like all of the all the sdis we could think of so um i could link that for sure because it's useful i feel like people don't really talk about that much um okay cool so if you've like had a risk you know if you get a test like the next day yeah, it's like- not guaranteed that it would show up um so obviously if, if you have symptoms and things like go to get a mm-hmm. test but um yeah just sort of like having a regular testing schedule is uh is recommended yeah because i feel like before i kind of got into like kind of sexual health stuff and like all of that i didn't know Mm -hmm. that there were like different windows i feel like that's not very like common knowledge because i think usually the kind of like recommendations that i was told was like Mm -hmm. every three months and then like before every new partner Um, so the last thing we wanted to mention as something that can help prevent HIV is just kind of staying informed and being able to talk about it openly. Um, you know, having these conversations with people like, oh, when were you last tested? Oh, what's your status? You know, um, are you on prep? Things like that. Um, you know, making it easier to talk about helps people actually feel comfortable about sharing that information and kind of leads to a, I guess, healthier sex life as a whole. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Because as we were talking about earlier, like stigma and stuff like that, it's just like a really 
major barrier to kind of like mm-hmm. getting people access to care and things like that. And it's also been kind of like identified as like a risk factor for HIV transmission as well. And I feel like I've seen, especially on like, I've seen online, like from kind of grinder and stuff like that, like, cause you have a place where you can put if you're like yeah on prep or like if you're HIV positive or negative and stuff like that. Um, I've seen like quite a lot of like sad things of like people showing screenshots of people saying that they're like really disgusting and like stuff like that just because they're like HIV, even if they're like undetectable and like untransmittable and stuff like that. And like people saying like, oh, you're going to kill people like that kind of a thing. Like this kind of stigma like yeah. is just one, it's just really horrible for the person who has HIV and like they're going through treatments and stuff like that. And they like don't want to, I don't no. imagine they want to be like, told that they're gonna kill people just because of like something that they didn't ask to have and yeah it's just um, like inaccurate as well because like because of the treatments that are available like hiv doesn't have to like you know you can get to the point where you can't even pass it on through mm-hmm. sex um so like yeah apart from being stigmatizing it's just like not even true <laughs> um one other kind mm-hmm. of like big misconceptions around hiv is that like it's like a gay disease and that mostly came from like yeah. the 80s and stuff when it was primarily affecting like gay men in america and stuff like that at the big, like very beginning of the pandemic i think mm-hmm. um but like while they're like higher for men who have sex with men like heterosexual individuals can get hiv as well through like blood semen pre pre uh vaginal fluid rectal fluid and like breast milk and stuff like that and like about half mm-hmm. of the people who have HIV globally are women. So it's just like also factually incorrect to kind of act like HIV only really affects like gay men. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of comes out, I guess, of like the sort of history and like people's sort of first thoughts about HIV kind of being yeah. AIDS in the 80s, um, where like it started off, you know, people literally thought like, you know, it was like a gay cancer or like it was called, it was called GRID, like gay related immune disorder, which yeah just like horrible stuff but um i think people are still kind of stuck in that mindset about it sometimes yeah because i think one of like the really like harmful kind of conspiracy theories that kind of like came out of that thinking was kind of like people saying that like hiv was like sent by god to kind of kill gay Mm. people for like committing like sins and stuff like that yeah um just like really like horrible stuff to kind of like say to people Mm. And, like, a lot of these kind of conspiracy theories are based on, like, moralistic and, like, homophobic views of kind of, like, if you were, like, a good Christian and, like, didn't lead this, like, quote-unquote lifestyle, you wouldn't have mm-hmm. HIV, which is just, like, really harmful. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's just horrible to kind of say to people and, like, that kind of misinformation and, like, misconceptions and stuff stops people from getting treatment and, like, seeking help and then thus, like, spreading it to other people if they're having sex yeah absolutely um should we go into a bit of the the history of hiv yeah i went down a little rabbit hole yesterday (laughs) (laughs) nice Um, because i find this really interesting but Mm -hmm. we can't really do like a very comprehensive summary of the history because we would be here forever yes a long time like it went on for a long time there's also like because it was like a global thing there's so many little parts so i'm kind of I went down the kind of initial American timeline um, Mm -hmm. just because that was a lot easier for me to find and kind of make sense of. Um, Yeah. But basically, like, the first initial cases in America were in 1981, but it didn't take until, like, 
1985 for the then president Ronald Reagan to even like publicly address it, um, which was like a really horrible thing. Cause like, imagine if they did that with COVID, they just like didn't say anything. Yeah. Um, and I've mm-hmm. seen reports of people at like press conferences kind of bringing up HIV and stuff like that prior to like 1985. Um, and then like, I saw things of like basically like him mm. and like the other people like on his team basically like mocking people who are bringing up the questions by kind of being like, why do you care? Like, do you have HIV? Like, are you gay? Kind of a like insinuation because it's kind of a thing where it's like, wow, maybe they just like didn't want to kind of like act upon this because it was kind of primarily affecting people who were like gay or drug users or like racial minority groups or immigrants and like stuff like that like yeah absolutely that's yeah definitely i mean if it was affecting like the general population or populations that weren't like already mar- marginalized i'm sure they would have you know actually done something about it earlier but they just didn't care it seems yeah like i feel like if it was something that like directly like affected the economy like the way that like covid did and like mm. also affected like everyone because everyone breathes um, yeah. <laughs> um then maybe something else would have been done, but that like so much like inaction cost people so many lives and it like stopped so much like kind of progress in like the research and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but in 1987, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, we were called ACT UP. Um, they were a direct action group who pressured like officials and governments and like pharmaceutical companies to kind of like actually act upon the crisis and like help people. And their organizational motto was like silence equals death because like not talking about it, not acting upon what's actually happening to real people and stuff kills them. Um, And they were the group that made the like gigantic like AIDS memorial quilt. And I think like these days it's 54 tons and it has about like 50,000 panels dedicated to more than 105,000 individuals. And it's basically like a way of like remembering and like celebrating the lives of people who died from AIDS. And each like little tapestry bit is three by six feet, which is the standard size of a grave plot. Um, I can't remember where it's held now. I think it's held in Washington, but I could be wrong. Um, But I like, they have all the things like on the website, which I can link. You can like look through all the different like quilts and stuff that people have made. It's like really really beautiful yeah that's amazing and i I think there was like a uk AIDS Mm. quilt as well um that was made here because i think you know we do hear a lot of stuff from the us but um once it kind of made its way over to the uk a lot of this similar activism was happening here as well yeah definitely i think that's one of my favorite things because i went to quite a few like modern art museums and stuff when i was kind of traveling Mm. around europe and like there are quite a few where it's like a random object and like you kind of look at it and you're like what is this and then you actually like look at the description and it's like based around someone's like deceased loved one who like died of like an hiv related illness or something like that like one that i can think of that i saw was like it's like a string of fairy lights like and then one of the bulbs was out but then the rest of them were lit or something like that and it's basically kind of like symbolizing like life and then like that person yeah. like dying and then like life carrying on um and then there's like another one that i saw on twitter that was just like a it was like an ac unit like in a glass box um and basically like the meaning behind that was like after his partner passed away from hiv like his family like completely like took everything out of that apartment except for that box and that was the only thing that he had left to kind of like 
commemorate and like remember him by. So he made like an art piece kind of doing that. And it's like, there are so many things like that where they're like really beautiful, but they're also like really tragic that like they couldn't like kind of remember their partner and like kind of take the things that they had to kind of like remember them by. Cause like their part, like their partner's parents like yeah. took everything. Yeah. It's really moving to see stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, because I think it's one of those things where people look at it and they're like, oh, modern art sucks. I'm like, if you actually like <laughs> looked at like, what it's about, then you'd actually yeah, like, understand totally. kind of what it's talking about. Um, but yeah, like another thing in 1987 was basically the drug AZT was approved by, I think it was approved by the FDA. And it was like an abandoned cancer drug, but it was disregarded at the time when they were testing it for cancer because it was really toxic. Um, and they tested it on patients with HIV and AIDS. Um, and like that testing period was supposed to last six months, but they ended it after six weeks due to ethical reasons because they had one person die in the AZT group and then 19 people die in the control group. So they kind of felt like mm. it would be unethical to kind of like continue the treatment, but also like the kind of evidence that they had wasn't very good. Like, one like um doctors weren't really kind of given like a kind right. of standard way of like treating the other problems like related to aids mm. so that could make it difficult to determine if like azt alone was kind of what was responsible for kind of like the dramatic results and stuff that they found and also like a lot of patients who were in the trial if they were in the control group they kind of found ways to get the drug as well and they like because apparently like you could distinguish them by taste they like fix that later but like by the time that they fixed it the kind of damage had already been done oh right yeah and there's also like um um but yeah but like the drug cost at the time it was eight thousand wow. dollars a year but in today's because uh, of like inflation that would be seventeen thousand mm-hmm. dollars a year which i think i found that it would be the most expensive drug um because it was like distributed by like a british company called like burroughs welcome or something like that uh, yeah. and they're, like also kind of like aids buyers clubs kind of like you know like dallas buyers club like the movie they're like buyers clubs are like for other things as well not just like aids medication but there were a lot of people kind of because of how expensive these drugs were kind of getting kind of knockoff versions and stuff like that and kind of like selling them for cheaper like pirated versions to kind of like try and help support people who had HIV but weren't getting any medication because there wasn't really that much other than AZT at the time. Like I think now there's I think there's like over like 20 something medications that people can get when I was Googling. Um but the drug also just like had like really horrible like side effects. Like people had like really bad like chronic headaches, nausea, muscle fatigue and stuff like that. And like I couldn't really find a very conclusive thing about this, so I could be wrong, but there was, like, things saying that people found that, like, the T cells, so, like, the white blood cells that kind of, like, help protect us from viruses and stuff like that, like, they initially went up with um, AZT, but then after a while, they, like, really dramatically decreased and made people a lot worse. Oh, interesting. Like, I think I remember them talking about that on um, It's a Sin. yeah. But I'm, yeah, but I was, like, trying to find, like, very conclusive evidence of that, but I couldn't really find that much, so I could be wrong with that, so, like, take that mm. with a grain of salt. Um, 
but I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, it is wild just to see kind of where the treatment started and like where it's at now. Um, it's just like been been such a difference. Uh, but yeah, it it's a yeah, shame cause... to see how much of it ties to like pharmaceutical companies as well. Like once they were kind of able to start making money off of it and then like, you know, making it kind of mm-hmm. inaccessible to anyone who couldn't pay these, you know, wild amounts of money. Um, but so yeah, I think very thankful to kind of be in a place at the moment like just at least in the UK where like you can get it for free um, because you know it it definitely should be yeah definitely like I saw a lot of things of um, I think it was like the FDA like approval meeting or something like that like there were like a lot of quotes from doctors like really having to kind of like grapple with kind of the ethical issues of using Mm. this drug in particular because they knew about like how toxic it was because it was basically like a completely shelved drug because they were like we can't Mm. use this against like we can't use it against like cancer and stuff like that um and apparently like they just kept getting kind of like wishy-washy answers by like the pharmaceutical company basically being like oh we'll test it we'll do like a two-year test but we should give it to people now kind of a thing they were like but we don't have any evidence of like the long-term effects of this drug like should we really be giving it to these people but they also had that kind of like duty of care of kind of being like but we also feel like we shouldn't not give them treatment because we don't really have much else to kind of help them. So we, should we just like try? Yeah. It's like really difficult. Yeah. But like another really interesting part of like um, HIV history that I really liked was like basically the kind of like solidarity between gay men and lesbian women. Um, because basically lesbian women would care for gay men, especially if they were like kind of estranged from their family or they weren't out to their family or anything like that because of that kind of stigma of like Mm -hmm. HIV being like a gay disease. Like they couldn't tell their family that they had HIV. Um, So like having the kind of like support of like a gay woman was like really helpful. And then when blood bans were enacted against men who have sex with men in 1983, um, because of like the amount of like blood tests and like kind of transfusions and stuff that people needed while they were on the medication, lesbians would kind of do these like massive like lesbian blood drives and like supply blood and stuff to the gay men and it's like so like it's like a really nice kind of example of like Mm. kind of queer solidarity and stuff like that yeah absolutely like caring for your community when no one else will Mm -hmm. because they were like lesbians were going through quite a lot of like stigma and stuff as well so it was kind of like yeah because I think I saw a thing where it was like, at the time gay men weren't particularly nice to lesbians a lot of the time but like regardless of that they still kind of like came through and like supported gay men while um their like community was dying and no one was like doing anything Mm -hmm. about it yeah Uh, a lot of like media kind of depictions can like either kind of accelerate stigma or kind of help dispel stigma so like i've seen i remember i saw like a really old commercial from i think it was america or the uk where it was like a big gravestone and it was already dramatic and it said like AIDS on it or something like that, like real scaremongery kind of stuff. Yeah. I um, think they show that and it's a sin. I think I remember it from that. Yeah. And I've also like saw it when I was kind of having a bit of a Google around, mm-hmm. um, where it like, obviously we now today, it's not a life sentence or anything anymore. Like it's not. Yeah, no, it's a, like, it's not a death sentence at all. I mean, people can, like we said, people can live like full healthy lives if they have access to treatment. Um, and I guess a lot of, even if the media is like a, mm. like a good, accurate depiction, like things like it's a saying or like pose, even, you know, like showing kind of what it was like in the eighties at that time. Um, 
I think that still forms people's sort of opinions on it where yeah. like they know about the history of it now, but they don't really know what it's like today. Um, I feel like you don't really hear a lot about um, it doesn't really come up in, I don't know, TV and movies these days. Um, I guess because it is just like a, a treatable, like, or not tre- like, it's just a, like a manageable, um, it's just a manageable virus. You know, I guess it's not as. Yeah. But I also guess that like these days it probably wouldn't, unless it was kind of like, kind of depicting like, someone who is like on their deathbed and like stuff like that with HIV or it being like really debilitating. It's if you just have people who are like got HIV and they're living completely like normal, regular lives, that's not quite as sensational, mm-hmm. which is quite like sad. Cause like I can, un- like, I guess that's why like TV, like companies and stuff are a bit like, what's the point? It's not mm-hmm. sensational. Like what kind of plot line yeah. is that when we could have like really good representation of like, people who have hiv who are living like completely regular mm-hmm. lives they're just like it's just like yeah not even like part of them it's just like something mm-hmm. that's happened to them and it's like not the whole identity yeah it, which is like like i feel like it's not some it's not in tv and film like sensationalized but then it still is in like i don't know, even tabloids and things like mm-hmm. if you look at like there's a thing with like gareth thomas like a couple of years ago where like it was kind of he was a he's a welsh rugby player who was kind of blackmailed into you know, coming out as HIV positive, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, still living a perfectly healthy life, but, um, and, you know, has become a really sort of positive role model, um, for that community, but also like he shouldn't have had to, you know, it doesn't have to be anyone's business. Um, so like, while it's really great to have people talking about it, it also isn't something that we should like force people to talk about, I guess. Definitely not. Like it's like, that's really sad. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's like someone's own choice if they want to kind of like disclose their own private medical business. Like it's not really, yeah. unless you're having sex with him mm-hmm. and you'd like to know, because you'd like to know any kind of STI or kind of stuff, like information about like your partners and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. re- oh, you're like his doctor. It's not really your business. Like, yeah, it's really sad that they like blackmailed him and stuff because it also does again, like kind of perpetuate that idea of like HIV is bad. Like, oh, you're going to like, mm-hmm. Yeah. But, like, I really liked um, It's a Sin. Yeah. Like, I guess, like, one of the things I did see was, like, criticizing it was basically being, mm-hmm. like, people are going to think it's still like this these days kind of a thing. But I thought it was, like, a really nice kind of mm-hmm. depiction of what it was like in the UK and kind of, like, how people thought about it then. Because, you know, like, at the beginning where they were just like, oh, it's mm-hmm. an American thing. Like, no, none of us are going to get it. Um, that sure made me cry yeah. a lot. <laughs> so yeah, I thought that was really... Yeah, so emotional. Yeah, um, but yeah, it was like definitely really good to see like the UK side of things because mm, again, definitely. yeah, we don't really see that too often. I don't think. And then, like again, like as we said earlier, like kind of like Princess Diana and stuff like that, kind of dispelling myths. Mm-hmm. And I think I saw that like Prince Harry in like 2016, like publicly, like did a HIV test to kind of like um, help get rid of some stigma around like getting tested and stuff like that because like yeah i'm not the biggest fan of the royal family <laughs> yeah that's pretty cool because they have like a really big like audience and like platform mm-hmm. stuff yeah no totally i think maybe prince harry was like i think that was i don't know if that specific specific time but i think he like showed his support for gareth thomas as well when he mm-hmm. like kind of was talking about it so yeah definitely good for people in power to actually um yeah raise awareness and kind of like spread good information rather than yeah misinformation <laughs> that everyone else is hearing from like tabloids newspapers and things like that mm-hmm. yeah it's definitely good to hear it from like the actual person instead of like there's like a lot of like celebrities who are like 
HIV positive and they do a mm. lot of like advocation work and it's a lot better to hear it from them rather than kind of like people who are just trying to make like a quick bug, like doing like a really sensationalist like headline and stuff mm-hmm. like that and like the scum or like Daily Mail or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hate the <laughs> Yeah. It's horrible. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, just like, yeah, letting the community speak for themselves as well, like supporting people living with HIV, um, but like listening to them and like, what do they actually need? You know, um, mm-hmm. do they need more visibility? Do they need more awareness? Do they need to just be like, let to live in peace? You know, I mean, it's like, you have to actually figure out, um, you have to like actually uh, listen to the community, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And there's like a lot of like really good research and stuff going on at the moment. Like I know my, um, this supervisor she does a lot of research about like hiv um and it's just like there's a lot of like really good stuff going on mm-hmm. there just needs to be i think like a lot more kind of about like the trans community because like a lot of the things i found were like the rates are higher but we don't have enough kind of conclusive yeah. data about it mm-hmm. um but it's definitely getting like a lot better than it was mm-hmm. before yeah i mean yeah i just think yeah, as a sort of marginalized group that, you know, is affected by HIV at, like, higher rates than the general population. Um, definitely something that people need to be aware about and find out ways to, um, you know, help trans people access those preventative services um, as much as they can. Yeah, plus, like, I think, I I don't think I've ever seen anything that looked at kind of non-binary people, mm-hmm. and I don't think I've maybe seen, like, one thing, one or two things that have looked at like trans masculine or like trans mm-hmm. men's risk it's usually on trans women which is like completely fine because they're like an at-risk group like they need all the, like the research they can get because as i said before not that much about mm-hmm. anyone yeah. in the trans community but i think i'd be quite interested to see what the risk factors and stuff like that are for other kind of gender minority groups and stuff like that as well. Because I think obviously like trans men and non-binary people also need care. Yeah, definitely. I think especially, yeah, like non-binary people are just ignored in lots of sort of healthcare settings and research. And um, yeah, there's a lot that needs to change. So thanks for listening to this episode about HIV and World AIDS Day. Um, We hope you take today to remember all those who died due to AIDS-related illness, as well as raising awareness for the reality of what HIV is like today. Um, Especially as queer people, I think, you know, HIV and AIDS have been a big part of our history, and it's important to remember that and to, you know, acknowledge how far that we've come. Um, In terms of podcast related stuff um obviously as always you can find us on twitter and instagram at gender fck pod um yeah we'll also post some like resources in the episode description um and the link so that you can ask us questions and give us feedback um so yeah i hope you all have a nice couple weeks and thanks again for listening